Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Breaking news this morning. The suspected gunman who killed two people in the Belgian capital, Brussels, has been shot and arrested by police. The Belgian Prime Minister confirmed the victims were both Swedish and were wearing Sweden football shirts ahead of the Euro 2024 qualifying match against Belgium due to take place last night, which was later abandoned. Uh, Joining me uh, to react to this and today's other big stories is former Conservative advisor Leon Emirali. Welcome, Leon. Uh, Well, I mean, this is the danger, isn't it, when you get tinderbox situations like that over in Israel. Uh, They erupt there and the uh, reverberation spread around the world, this is clearly a direct response to what's been going on in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, it's a very worrying time right now. And I think you see that on both a macro front. Obviously, you've got this this war going on between uh, Israel and Hamas and potentially other players coming into that. But then you've also got this sort of micro front of the war, which is potentially lone wolf terrorists who might be inspired, who might feel empowered to go out and commit violence on the streets of European cities outside of that direct sort of theatre of war within Israel and within Gaza. So it's really worrying on both fronts. And I do think this is just giving credit effectively or giving voice really to to those who are saying that Hamas is not a terrorist organisation because we can see individuals who, you know, we don't know yet, but it seems that there could be a link between this terrorist and Hamas. And if that is the case, then I think there needs to be investigated. He's screaming about ISIS, apparently, which doesn't make him particularly contemporaneous. Uh, uh, but I would suggest uh, Hamas is on his mind. Mm. Uh, and this is what Hamas want. Uh, they want people like this guy uh, all over the world to yeah. unleash terror on innocent people. Yeah, we heard a, a, a chilling uh, quote from one of the former leaders of Hamas uh, last Friday calling for this sort of day of action. Jihadi, well, day of jihad. The day of jihad. And yeah. it was, you know, it was worrying. I remember saying to my wife, you know, be careful if you're going out and about on Friday because you don't know what's going to happen. And there have been small incidents of, of, uh, of terror attacks. Whether or not they've been directly linked or not, we, we don't know. But for a while in this country, in London, in big cities around the UK, we've been quite free of terrorism of late, thank goodness. But it does feel as though the threat is creeping back, and that should be of of worry to to all of us. It certainly is creeping back. I mean, uh, we've got these anti-Semitic attacks. Mm. Uh, uh, You know, a a Jewish girls' school was closed yesterday. Uh, We know several other Jewish schools have been closed uh, up near where I live, uh, in Golders Green. Mm. Uh, That is a a town uh, or a little area 
It's on red alert there. It's a mm. very strange atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, we, the fact that schools are having to close, Kevin, I think yeah. just tells you how ridiculous this situation is and how worrying this situation is because these are terrorists that are going after the most innocent people in society. Yeah. They are cowardly yeah. terrorists yeah. going after people who can't defend themselves, not able to defend themselves, whether you're at a music festival in Israel, a football match in Belgium. You know, these are not people that are prepared to fight back and the terrorists know that and they're going after them intentionally so you know it's it's a it's a disgraceful situation absolutely now i know you're not a military strategist uh, but uh, i'd be interesting to get your view on this now over the weekend we were told that's when the israeli invasion would mm. begin and i think it was sunday we heard oh it's not going to go in because of the weather mm. looked all right to me <laughs> and the one good thing you can say about that region it does have quite nice weather uh now uh they still haven't gone in no now Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State uh, from America, has been seen in uh, heated, well, not heated talks, but uh, deep discussions mm. with Netanyahu around a big uh, committee table. Uh, we know uh, Joe Biden's on his way. Yeah. Uh, my theory is that, some, that uh, America has tried desperately to uh, calm the situation down and is urging Israel mm. uh, to be restrained in its reaction. Uh, we've heard that Netanyahu has agreed uh, in this new spirit to uh, turn the water back on for parts of Gaza. Uh, so uh, the fact that they have not yet rolled in, mm. I think is something to do with America. That's just my theory. What's your theory as to why we're still waiting? Agree with you entirely. I think America, you know, ultimately are the guarantors of the Israeli military. And I think without America's go-ahead, I don't think there's going to be any significant action. So I think there has to be international agreement. And I think we should also be looking quite closely at what's coming out of Tehran in Iran. They are saying that if Israel do launch this sort of ground war in Gaza, that Tehran will be... Uh, forced to respond themselves. And I think that is where America is particularly nervous because this could this could escalate into something you know, unimaginable if we don't get it right and if the West and its allies don't get it right. So I think we're looking at those warnings coming from Iran and America are being very nervous. And we have seen a ramping back of the language now where it used to be uh, Joe Biden would say Israel has a right to defend itself. He still says that. But he also said in his interview uh, the other day with 60 Minutes that actually there should also be a route towards a Palestinian state. So it is a dampening of language. Yeah, and let's uh, not forget a very tense situation on the northern border. Hezbollah still firing rockets in uh, Israel, making very threatening noises there. Mm. So uh, we've got the potential uh, for a full-scale conflict from the east and the north, mm. uh, not forgetting the south. Uh, it's getting worse. I don't know if these pictures we're looking at now are live, but man, that is one hell of... Mm. That's not live. I remember this. This is from yesterday. We watched this live. Mm. Uh, it was around about 10.30 yesterday morning. Mm. Uh, hell of an explosion there. So the bombing uh, continues. Uh, let's um, uh, return to Britain uh, and talk about uh, domestic affairs. Uh, now, the, it was something that must interest you as a, uh, a scion of Westminster. Uh, Peter Bone, the mm. veteran Tory MP, famous for being a, a vehement Brexiteer, uh, anti-Euro Tory. Uh, he's the MP for Wellingborough. He has been found guilty of a number of uh, offences, of bullying in his office, and worse, uh, 
potentially uh, exposing himself to a member of his staff. Mm. He denies all of these charges uh, very strongly, but has been found guilty of them and now faces a six month, uh, six weeks suspension, which will trigger a by-election, mm. another by-election uh, nightmare for Rishi Sunak. But to widen this out, you, you worked in Westminster. You know, I was saying earlier, if you extract female MPs, uh, you know, I don't know what are they, 400, 450 male MPs? Yeah. Out of them, 56 mm. right now mm. are being investigated for alleged uh, sexual inappropriate behaviour. Mm. 56, that's pretty disproportionate. Incredible numbers. And I think having worked in Westminster, there is a huge power imbalance between the MP, who is this sort of all-seeing, all-knowing, great... Uh, it's where they're celebs, aren't they? They're sort of... They feel... It's their Hollywood, isn't it? It's their Hollywood. It's Hollywood for ugly they're people. The <laughs> and I think you see that, and then you see this power imbalance with their staffers, who tend to be young kids, you know, in their sort of early 20s, not earning very much, but are in awe of where they are working. And, you know, ultimately, they think, these MPs, if my staffer leaves because it doesn't like the way I talk to them, doesn't like the way I treat them, that's fine. I'll get someone else because there's no shortage of people wanting to work in Westminster for MPs. So there is this huge imbalance, and I think that's what's led to these you know, disgraceful behaviour. When you look at those numbers, Kevin, if that was in any other workplace, you'd shut it down. You would, wouldn't because you? Because it's not on that these you know, young, vulnerable people, ultimately, are being treated that way by... Or, or allegedly being treated the way that Peter Bone has been treating them, I think is, is you know, a real problem. Yeah, I've got to stress that Peter Bone uh, very much denies these charges. So let's uh, talk about the political ramifications of this. Uh, when I say charges, he's by the uh, Parliamentary Standards Committee, he's been found guilty. I think it's of five offences, mm. uh, possibly six, most about bullying, but one uh, sexual, uh, alleged sexual incident. Uh, but uh, he is going to... He faces suspension uh, for six weeks. I believe that technically the Tories have to agree to that, but uh, I think they will. That will trigger a by-election in mm. Wellingborough. Mm. Uh, I'm sure he, his majority is pretty uh, substantial, but the way things have been going, that's no guarantee the Tories will hang on to the seat. Numerically, doesn't matter, but it's another yeah. nail in uh, Rishi's coffin if he loses. Right? Yeah, and, and we'll see, really, what happens after Thursday where we see the by-election results in, in Mid-Bedfordshire and Tamworth, where we'll see you know, Conservative majorities, particularly in Mid-Bedfordshire, if that is a seat that, that turns over from the Conservatives or is very, very close, then I think that is going to spell difficulty for Rishi Sunak and he's going to want to avoid a by-election uh, in, in Peter Bone's constituency. So, But if it's tight, if, it's, if, if they can retain that seat, maybe it shows that actually the polls are closer than, than, than we think. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it does seem that the groundswell now is going in Starmer's direction, mm. doesn't it? I mean, it seems to me... You know, this time last week, we were saying, oh, could Rishi do it? Can he turn it around? Uh, you know, and he's done quite a few things to at least try to put some clear blue water mm. between Labour and the Tories so you know who you're voting for. You know, mm. he's going to rail back on green policies. He's obviously going to try to get tougher on the boats. Uh, he's actually on course to half for inflation by Christmas. So all of those, this time last week, it looked as if there were some green shoots mm. of optimism uh, for the Tories. But a week on, you know, I reluctantly admit that the Labour conference was pretty much a success yeah. for Starmer. A week on, 
it just looks worse and worse for Sunak, doesn't it? It does look bad, but what I would say is let's not make any predictions until we get to that sort of straight shoot-off between Starmer and Sunak. When it gets to those TV debates, when it gets to the one-on-one, -on -one, you're not necessarily looking at the Conservative brand versus the Labour brand. You're looking at Sunak versus Starmer. And I think that is going to be a more interesting battle between the two of them. Because let's face it, Keir Starmer is no Tony Blair. And I think the numbers that we're seeing at the moment suggest there's going to be a 97, you know, 1997-style landslide. He's not Tony Blair. He hasn't got the charisma. He hasn't necessarily got the vision for the country that Blair had. So I'm not entirely sure Starmer's got it in him to lead this huge majority. And Sunak might potentially get things uh, moving in his direction. Yeah, people saying that uh, in the end it will come down to a personality contest mm. between... Starmer and Sunak, uh, well, that's absolutely wrong because neither of them have got personalities, <laughs> so don't worry about that. Uh, right, moving on. Uh, US President Joe Biden will visit Israel tomorrow to be briefed on the country's plans for war against Hamas. Israeli defence forces are on the verge of a major ground offensive in retaliation to the terror attacks that killed at least 1,400 people. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said yesterday that six British lives have been lost in Hamas attacks. Earlier today, an additional British casualty was confirmed, 13-year-old Yahel. Her sister Noya and father Eli are still missing. Uh, Joining me to talk about this in more detail is Richard Pater, Director of the Britain-Israel Communications and Research Centre. Uh, thanks for joining us, Richard. You're over there in Jerusalem. Uh, what is the, I, I always say I hate this question, but I think it's relevant now. You're in Jerusalem, uh, you're in the heart of an, a region that is on a knife edge. What is the atmosphere like there? Thank you for having me. The atmosphere here is pretty, is pretty somber. Um, people are still grieving. There are still funerals going on here. Um, and uh, as in the Jewish custom of kind of then the, uh, the, the, days of, the days of mourning for the families. So that's all going on whilst at the same time, Israelis are showing a, uh, a stoicism and a fortitude to just get on with it now because we understand that this is sadly just the beginning. What we saw on October the 7th kind of shook Israel to its core. There's never been an attack like that. But Israelis are coming to terms with that and understanding that uh, the, the day after the Hamas can no longer be uh, able to threaten Israel as it has done. Let me ask you this, uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State uh, from America, uh, has been over there in deep talks with Benjamin Netanyahu. We've seen lots of footage of them around committee tables, uh, deep in discussions. Uh, we know Joe Biden's on his way to the Middle East tomorrow. Uh, and at the weekend, we thought uh, that the imminent uh, Israeli invasion of Gaza would happen. Uh, we were told the weather held it off. Uh, Netanyahu kept saying, it's coming, next stage, you know, here we go, next stage, it's about to happen. It still hasn't happened, Richard. Is it the Americans holding Israel back? Are they urging restraint? And is Mr Netanyahu listening? No, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think this is, I mean, we can talk about afterwards what the Americans' role here is, but when it comes to uh, the potential for a ground operation, I think that would be based purely on operational considerations on the Israeli side. They've decided for now that, uh, first of all, they've created a national unity emergency government with, uh, with 
with some more pragmatists and moderates coming in from the center of Israeli politics. Um, the two mem members that have entered the inner war cabinet are both former IDF chief of staff, so they have a wealth of experience and uh, understanding of what uh, a battle with Hamas uh, involves. And at the moment, they've restricted it to a quite a vociferous air campaign targeting Hamas military infrastructure. And they're, and they're building a plan. They're basing it, first of all, on intelligence, because what we understand from previous rounds, although this is on a different level of magnitude, previous rounds have, have, have taught the Israelis that Hamas bury themselves deep underground. There is a labyrinth of tunnels there that operate under people's homes and, uh, and houses and other residential areas deliberately um, to prevent Israel from, uh, from attacking. And as we know now, I mean, still this morning, we've seen constant rocket fire. However much the, the Israeli army are hitting Hamas targets from the sky, they're still able to fire rockets. Uh, I had to take my family down into a, into a shelter yesterday here in Jerusalem. So there is still that duality um, ongoing. Um, in your mind, as someone on the scene, uh, is there any doubt that uh, there will be a a massive Israeli invasion happening fairly soon. Uh, as I say, we've been on a knife edge over here, thinking it was imminent at any second. Mr Netanyahu kind of indicated, you know, any moment now, here we come. Uh, it, but uh, it still hasn't happened. In your mind, Richard, uh, it will definitely happen and reasonably soon. I, I mean, it's very difficult to speculate that. I'm obviously not privy to those, to those military uh, um, discussions and, uh, and, and, and strategic conversations. I would say that, first of all, unlike an operation which is launched at the initiative of an army, this is essentially a response to, that, uh, to the brutal, brutal massacres. So Israel is taking their time. They're assessing the intelligence. They're making sure that operational plans are in place for the ground forces. We don't know yet what scale it will be to go in. We don't know if it will be to target that labyrinth of, of tunnels that I mentioned, or whether there will be some audacious attempt to rescue some of the hostages um, that, that, are, that are still there. This is, this is kind of open, open speculation, and I suggest we just wait and see. Um, and uh, it is important, though, is it not, that Israel is seen to avenge what happened to it nine days ago. I mean, Israel was the victim, uh, uh, to say war crimes is the understatement of the century. These were grotesque atrocities. You know, grandmothers raped, Absolutely. babies beheaded, people executed on their doorstep. It is important uh, that Israel avenges what happens to its people uh, and that they are seen to do so. Would you agree with that? I'm not sure avenges the, is the right term. I think what really they want to, the, the, the objectives of this operation will be to prevent Hamas from ever doing it again. And so that, will, that may well involve a ground incursion, but it will be to target systematically the, uh, the, the military infrastructure that Hamas have, whether it's kind of their, their ability to fire rockets, their, uh, their weapons making, make, making factories, their command and control centers, their observation centers, the, and, 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 and the, uh, the military leadership themselves. So that's what it's about. It's about preventing, preventing future attacks. I do think as well that, as, as you've uh, implied, Israel has other enemies around the region and they are all watching as well. And so there is a sense of, of, of sending a signal that, uh, that the other sides shouldn't be, uh, be, be brought into this. We've seen, as, as you're, I'm sure, aware, um, small-scale attacks 
from Hezbollah and from Lebanon. This morning, there was an anti-rocket missile fired at a civilian vehicle that has injured two people in the city of Matullah, and the IDF just declared that, declared that a, a closed military zone. We saw that over the weekend as well, that whilst the Hezbollah was starting, First of all, to target military sites, they've now. This is the second civilian target that they that they've now struck. This is under the threshold of war with them, and Israel is careful to return fire at the moment to the source of the fire and not exasperate things further. But uh, but Hezbollah's potential arsenal are a different scale of magnitude to Hamas, and that's obviously um, high up in the concerns. And that's, I think, what the Americans are here to be discussing to send a message to Iran and to Hezbollah that they shouldn't get involved. Well, attrition in the Middle East uh, surrounding Israel is something, uh, sadly, we've had to get used to. I mean, the firing of rockets by Hezbollah and Hamas is a regular event, uh, unbelievably, that people just see as part of their way of life there. Uh, so this is, you know, attrition between the, the various sides is not new. What, to you, uh, Richard, feels different about this situation? So, I mean, listen, since Hamas took over the Gaza Strip um, 17 years ago, we've had four or five different rounds of, uh, of, of fighting. But what we saw, the scale of the attack, the barbarity of the attack on October the 7th has really kind of paled into, put all the other uh, small rounds of conflict into proportion, that this is of a, a, a far huger scale of magnitude. And therefore, unlike reaching a, a modus vivendi where, where Hamas are temporarily put off, this is why the, the Israeli public are backing the government to go far far more assertively, far stronger, and to end the capacity of, uh, of Hamas rule there. When Joe Biden uh, comes uh, tomorrow, uh, do you think that the, the, the mere fact that he's on his way uh, will probably mean that uh, Israel will not invade Gaza until the Amer American president is either on the scene or has left? We, we can speculate that. I mean, my sense is that the operational plans are going on in tandem, in parallel to any visit by, by um, even by the president of the US. And I think the US concern and their and the, the moving of the uh, of, of their aircraft carriers off the coast of Israel is much more a signal to uh, to Iran and Hezbollah. Um, to quote the for Israel's former prime minister, the Israeli assessment sees the Iranian octopus kind of operating various levers within the region. We know, although they are they are Persians, non-Arabs, they're in control of four Arab capitals in Sana and Yemen, in Baghdad, in, uh, in Damascus and in Beirut. They have that influence. This over the last year or two, they've been trying to increase their, their exposure and influence over the Palestinian arena as well, both in Gaza and the West Bank. And if you look at Gaza, I mean, obviously Israel up until last week kept open humanitarian aid and, uh, and, and goods coming in and out. And that's clearly where it was exposed that uh, all these weapons that were smuggled in came from somewhere. So it's clearly the, the Iranian influence on this sector which is causing such devastation and terror. Uh, last question, Richard. Uh, uh, the, this was the worst uh, massacre of uh, Jewish people since the Holocaust. Uh, try to sum up uh, what the mood of the Israeli people is. I mean, without wishing to preempt your answer, I would imagine it's a, a mixture of grief and fury. Uh, try to sum up uh, how you're feeling, how your fellow countrymen are feeling. So as I said at the beginning, that absolutely the first, the first reaction is shock. 
and and grief. Um, I've, I know personally families that were affected, families that are still missing their kids because Hamas also not only brutally massacred and butchered people in their homes, but also have taken up to over 200 hostages. And so that remains a, a key issue. The, uh, the issue of that sensitivity is, is, is real and, uh, and, and visceral for the, for the Israeli public. And, and there's so much love and concern for those families to give, to give them the, uh, the protection and hopefully to find some form of, uh, of relief for them soon. But at the same time, as I said, kind of this country is, is, has, is used to conflict and understands that uh, when the call comes, people must turn up. And there's been, I've heard quoted kind of when they, the army called up over 300,000 reserves and they can confirming in some units 130% attendance. I, even people that weren't called up are volunteering and, uh, and, and want to stand up and serve. In other places around the country, there are voluntary networks of people who are supplying kind of the basic necessities for the people in the South that have also had to, had to leave their homes and sublime kind of the, the, the basic of, uh, of, of care for them. And so there are lots of other humanitarian and, uh, and civilian efforts in, within, the, within the, non, the non-military efforts to support the country at this time. And I'd just like to say we also appreciate the support from outside the world as well. I think not only the US, but the British government has been very supportive. We saw a very important visit by Foreign Secretary cleverly last week. These things matter. We've got the uh, other European leaders who are also expected to come in this week. And Israel stands shoulder to shoulder with their, with their democratic allies to fight against this brutal ISIS-type terror. Welcome back. You are watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk TV. Polish opposition leader Donald Tusk is declaring the beginning of a new era after three opposition parties appeared to have won enough votes in Sunday's election to oust the governing party. Joining me now to discuss this further and why it affects us at home is Polish political reporter Bartosz Wilenski. Uh Good morning, Bartosz. Uh, tell us... Uh, good morning. To, this, is, is this expected? Because uh, from our side of the water, as it were, we're rather surprised by this. We thought Poland was doing well uh, under its uh, current regime, and yet, no, the people of Poland have uh, rejected it. What's going on? Well, the uh, Polish government, the incumbent government that lost the election, was uh, they were masters of propaganda. The master of, you know, well, telling people the situation is far better than it really was. And uh, the point is, uh, uh, my countrymen, I believe, they had enough of, you know, lies, propaganda, uh, hatred in politics, misuse of state resources, corruption, and, uh, well, the cheap uh, and ineffective populism. Uh, uh, well, uh, despite that, what was being said by the prime minister, but all the captured media, uh, the Polish state uh, wasn't working uh, well. There were problems with incompetence, uh, with, uh, well, no effectivity in many, many, many areas. Uh, that was, for instance, uh, just before the elections, many petrol stations uh, run by a uh, state uh, oil company went uh, dry. Uh, you couldn't buy a fuel. Just imagine a country, a fifth economy of the European Union, with no fuel in, in petrol stations. Uh, Poland, uh, well, Polish people were extremely mobilized. We got a turnout of uh, almost 75%. It never it never happened before uh, since 1989. Uh, something, you know, uh, really astonishing that so many people decided to, to take a part in the vote. And the turnout was especially high among the youngest voters. And the youngest voters 
probably gave the victory to the uh, opposition and to to Donald Tusk. They paved the way for Donald Tusk for 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 this for this spectacular victory. Frankly speaking, well, I was believing that that could happen, but I'm also surprised. And uh, if you have told me, you know, four months ago that that would be the outcome of the elections, well, I would say that this is not very, you know, probable. Uh, so, so well, polls are, are surprising. Uh, polls are surprising, and uh, as a surprise, sorry, and uh, the government is also surprised. Uh, they simply can't believe that that yeah. uh, we, they had, you know, they had everything. They have captured the media. The public television in Poland works like a Russian uh, state television. They have. Uh, you know, national economy uh, turned uh, into a party, you know, supporting machine. The entire state economy was supporting, okay. was supporting let, 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 uh, the, the ruling party. And, and they have lost it, you know, pumped billions of zlotys okay, into right, the electoral right, campaign. Okay. Uh, can I get a question in? Uh, so uh, here, uh, those of us uh, in Britain who, uh, and around Europe who don't particularly like the EU, uh, we always look to Poland. Uh, we were hoping you might be the first to leave. Uh, but uh, obviously that dream uh, has now drowned. That's not going to happen. And in fact, you've no. got uh, that ardent EU uh, fanatic Donald Tusk in charge now. Does this now mean that Poland will become like France and Germany, the very uh, epitome of EU philosophy? You're going to have a very European looking to Brussels uh, to rule you rather than rule yourselves. Yeah, well, actually, uh, well, there is a choice when you are Polish. There is a choice. If you want to be a world, uh, if you want to be a member of the community uh, from uh, Brussels community, or being ruled by by, by Russia. Well, if you are neighbor to Russia, well, you you, you have a very simple choice. You can always rule no, yourself. No, you can't rule yourself. You know, no country can well, be ruled yourself. What do you mean you a, can't rule world? yourself? It's not a bad idea. No, no, no. Well, actually, you know, each country of European Union is ruled by yourself. There's a community of, of sovereign country, well, and Donald Tusk is not a fanatic. I've had worse, uh, you know, supporters, uh, more, more, more engaged supporters of European Union. He's a clearly thinking person who knows where are the limits of, of European integration, and he knows uh, perfectly clear that there are some issues that, well, must remain within the single sovereignty of 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 of, of, of member countries. So he's not a federalist. He's not a he's not a you know uh, utopian uh, European um, uh, politician. And uh, that government that we had would get us out of the EU and put Poland into some kind of gray zone between West and, and, and Russia. Well, just look at the Hungary, what's happening in Hungary. Well, they're governing on the South. Uh, the politicians are on the Russian and Chinese payroll. Well, I didn't want uh, to have uh, such a situation in Poland, uh, that uh, our politicians would be working for, for China or for Russia, and uh, that our intelligence would be, and secret services would be penetrated so, by so Russia. So the Polish Chinese people spies. have decided they prefer Brussels to Moscow? Basically. Yes, yes. They, we prefer we prefer Brussels than Moscow, and we believe that there is no such thing like a Brussels occupation or, or being you know subjugated to Brussels. In in European Union, we are free, we are independent, we are sovereign. We'll be we'll be growing, and we'll be happy. Uh, and and, and it's our best choice. Uh, the Bartosz, the the current regime. Uh, for all its uh, failures that you've uh, outlined, uh, has been pretty successful in terms of uh, the migrant crisis. Uh, you, you're not getting too many no, migrant, mi migrants coming this. in. Uh, well, when Donald Tusk gets in, you'll, you'll have millions of them coming over the border. No, that's not true. They were not successful because they were they were just accepting, you know, extreme high corruption with uh, 
with the visas uh, distribution among people living in Asia and Europe. Poland accepted, you know, hundreds of thousands of workers from Southeast Asia, from Central Asia, from Africa. And we believe that many of those people just paid bribes to some middlemen to arrange that. So uh, if you look at the numbers, uh, how many people got Polish visa and left Poland after uh, arriving here? You, start, you could tell that Poland even increased the illegal immigration to Europe because those people were supposed to stay in Poland, not to go to Germany and to Sweden. So uh, they were totally ineffective in their practical, in their practical approach towards uh, reducing the immigration. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people arrived to Poland, and many of them left Poland to go somewhere else where the living conditions are better than here. Okay. So, so that, that, that's it. The weather. Storm Barbette is expected to bring strong winds and heavy rain across parts of the UK with some fears that the Met Office could issue a rare red weather warning. To explain this all, I'm delighted to be joined by the weather presenter, Claire Nasir. Uh, thanks for joining us. So what does a red weather warning actually mean, Claire? A red weather warning means a danger to life. It hasn't been issued yet. They will be issuing an amber warning for eastern Scotland, uh, but there's a lot of rain on its way, prolonged spells of wet weather and strong winds over a number of days, and that's the concern, really. It's the accumulation of rain through two, three, even four days. Uh, strong winds as well. I mean, this, is, this sounds like, you know, the red alert uh, impending. It sounds like one hell of a storm. Where's it coming from, Claire? Right, this storm is coming from Iberia, the Bay of Biscay. It's got some subtropical elements to it, which means it's potent. There will be a lot of rain. Initially across Northern Ireland, even Southern England will see some heavy pulses through tomorrow night. But really, to be honest, it's Scotland, Northeast England, where we're most concerned. There are numerous rain warnings in force across the country, from tomorrow right the way through until Saturday. And as you said, those wind warnings. So gusty winds, damaging winds coming in from the southeast. So that's going to enhance the rainfall over particularly eastern facing hills and mountains in the north. So really it's the combination of rain and wind. There'll be travel disruption. There probably will be quite a lot of flooding like we saw a couple of weeks ago in Scotland. So not a great scenario. In fact, very tricky with some Huge hazards out there. Uh, well, we gather it's going to hit us tomorrow uh, all over the UK, uh, Wednesday. Uh, any indication as to how long that this storm will last, Claire? OK, well, this is the thing. It's evolving at the moment. It's pushing slowly northwards. So in Scotland tomorrow and eastern England, you're going to see dry weather, but it will be very gusty. The rain will intensify across Northern Ireland for a time, but then it will wane. It's really on Thursday onwards where the full grip of Storm Barbette will take hold, particularly across northern and eastern areas. But even further south, we could see some thunderstorms. So to be honest, wherever you are, you will be impacted by some really lively weather, but it could be really dangerous weather with the amount of water we're expecting over probably around 60 hours. Uh, sounds very worrying. Uh, on a lighter note, uh, I don't suppose you know why it's called Storm Barbette, uh, do you, Claire? Uh, if not, why do they name storms generally? Do you know why it's called Storm Barbette? Yes, so that's Excellent. an interesting question, actually. So each year, the Met Office partnered with uh, Met Erin, which are the Irish Met Service, and also the Dutch Met Service, 
do a call out for names to the general public. So the mix of names are Celtic, they're, they're British, as well as Dutch. But add into that some a lot of diversity as well. So you get a real mixture of names, which obviously alternate between female and male, similar to the hurricane naming system. And the reason why we do this is because it's important to be able to message really important information in the best possible way so people can make inform, informed decisions about what to do. So by naming the storm, it really alerts the general public and emergency services to realize there's something pretty bad on its way. And so information is obviously, it, it's life-saving. So that's the reason why we do that at the Met Office and we're partnered with the Dutch Met Service and the Irish. So, uh... Diversity uh, in storm names, very important. Uh, and uh, it's every time then, Claire, every time a storm is named, that's yes. when you've got to take it seriously, yes? Oh, my goodness, absolutely. I mean, we've had some horrific storms across the UK through many years. Um, they used to be named associated with perhaps an event, like in 1979, we saw the, the Fastnet storm, which was associated with the Fastnet race, where a lot of people died. And I think it was the greatest rescue mission in, in peacetime Britain. So these things are there, they're, they're there so we can be reminded that weather and all its elements, even though it's life affirming, can be life damaging as well. So it's really only been in the last sort of eight or nine years we've, we've created this storm naming system, which is alphabetical. But it has really paid dividends already because when we see these weather warnings, people do take, take note. The engagement here at the Met Office is huge just across the board on all their social media channels. And it does work. And that's exactly why the Met Office are there to protect lives and allow lives to thrive under any weather situation. Uh, well, Claire, obviously in the short term, we're gonna be very worried about Storm Barbette. In the long term, what kind of a winter are we looking at, uh, do you think? Well, interestingly, Kevin, we've already had one named Storm. We're only into October. Does this bode for uh, many more? I don't know. The long-term trends in climate suggest that our winters will be wetter than average, uh, with a chance of the more potent storms coming our way. Interestingly, most of our storms come in from the west. However, when you get a cold snap, that comes in from the east. So we've seen those before. It's not going to be a blanket, wet, mild and windy, windy winter. Okay, Claire, even... well, listen, I'm looking forward to a white Christmas. Later today, a decision is expected on the controversial Oxford traffic measures. Some campaigners say they are essential for air pollution, and others say they are anti-democratic and harming local businesses. Uh, to talk about this in more detail, I'm delighted to be joined by Liam Walker from the Conservative Opposition on Oxford County Council. Liam, uh, what do you make of this? Uh, do you support it? No, not at all. Uh, completely against the low traffic neighbourhoods that the coalition here in Oxfordshire want to implement uh, and keep permanent. We've seen the bus companies write a scathing uh, letter uh, to the council saying they haven't worked. So the council have implemented these, arguing that it's about reducing congestion and improving bus services. Uh, and the bus service companies have come out and said, actually, it's not achieved that. So uh, I'm going to be addressing the meeting very shortly to uh, hopefully 
uh, convinced the cabinet to pull the plug on these anti-motorist measures, open up the roads. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out if you shut off side streets, all the congestion, all the cars are going to go onto the main roads. We told the council this would happen, uh, and lo and behold, that's what's happened. The consultation has showed uh, residents aren't in favour, and one of the roads, 63% people are against. But unfortunately, what we see here in Oxfordshire is despite consultation showing people don't favour these things, the Lib Dems and the Greens uh, are recommended today to press ahead with these measures. Uh, last week uh, on the show, uh, Liam, we had uh, Florence Pugh, the famous actress's father, Clinton Pugh, who runs a restaurant and a business uh, in central Oxford. And uh, he said that uh, this new sort of road scheme, this all-enveloping, uh, pervasive new low-traffic neighbourhood scheme, uh, has caused, is causing so much traffic, so many problems, it is ruining local businesses, including his. He's had to go to his daughter, or rather his daughter has had to bail him out. He's had a business there for 30 years. Suddenly, he's got to get bailed out because these new uh, road schemes have wrecked his business and his isn't the only one. This is anti-commerce, isn't it? Yeah, and, and it's not what councils should be doing. Councils should be getting the basic right. You know, here in Oxford, the council's just been hammered over not funding special educational needs. So rather than focusing on what the council should be delivering, what we as taxpayers are paying for, they're implementing these uh, roadblocks and AMPR cameras going up left, right and centre, school streets, we've got bus gates coming. It is absolutely ludicrous. This is not the way to take people on this journey. And it's all in the name of climate change, which is great. We all accept we need to reduce car journeys, but just hammering motorists in this way is not acceptable. Clinton is, has done an amazing job, but I know he's got a new banner on the side of, of his shop uh, on Cowley Road which the council took him to court to remove because it was uh, criticising uh, the council, despite the fact he's had a banner up there advertising uh, his restaurant for 30 years. But, you know, you put an anti-message up. You know, we're living now in, you know, I've been a councillor since 2017. And I've never known it to be this toxic. We've got security outside our council today because we've got protests. We've had armed police on site when we've had full council meetings. I have never known it to be this divisive. And that is all because these councillors, a lot of them who don't even live in the city, are implementing these anti-motorist measures. And it's our job as elected representatives to represent the people. And the people today for East Oxford have clearly said they do not want these LTNs in place. So the cabinet should listen to that and pull the plug on them. Important to stress, Liam, that uh, this is a situation that's going on all over the country. All sort of, all sorts of communities have suddenly had these accursed LTNs imposed upon them. Nobody ever asked for them. Councils decided that's what the people should have, even though they never voted for it. So it's going on all over the country. But in Oxford, it seems to be particularly egregious. Why has Oxford in particular become the sort of ground zero of the scourge of the LTNs? Why is it the worst place in the country for all of this nonsense? It does feel like we're on the, the front line against these sort of anti-motorist measures. I mean, this has been going on, you know, I know Wales have just gone to 20 mile an hour, but we've had that in Oxford for the past two years, £8 million <laughs> on so, 20 so mile an hour. So, laugh, sorry. You know, <laughs> it, it, well, you know, this is, this is what we are battling against every single day. My inbox is full of people, businesses, residents, bus companies, commuters complaining about these measures. And I say the same every single time. In May 2025, you have an opportunity. This is why 
voting really matters because at the end of the day people voted differently last time we've ended up with this coalition which did include labor but they they pulled out uh, only a few weeks ago and they've left the lib dems and the greens to mop up uh, the mess that they've inherited um but yeah we're really on the front line here in oxter and, and actually you know I, I i love this place i live i work in oxter you know i've always been here and i feel embarrassed to be a councillor here because of the reputational damage that these guys are doing uh, across the whole country you go to anywhere in, in the uk and say you're from oxter and they go oh, you've got vegan lunches now you've got ltns everywhere and you have to drive at 20 mile an hour i mean that's not what we should be known for but um you know we've got to we've got to keep up the fight and i'm hoping today that the cabinet really uh you know see sense here because like i said the bus companies have written a scathing letter uh, saying you shouldn't press ahead local residents are clearly not in favor businesses there's, there's lots of protesters outside as i speak uh, that are against this they cannot you know they cannot press ahead with this if they do it's anti-democratic uh, and that's why it's my job and, and the job of residents to make sure these guys don't win again in, in may 25 and if they do implement it uh, we uh you know have got methods in place we can hopefully pull the plug uh, and particularly if i'm back in charge of highways in oxfordshire i will be uh personally driving the jcb to remove these uh anti-roadblock measures and pulling down those uh, ampr cameras well i look forward to that um now uh, rishi sunak about a month or so ago uh, announced a review of LTN measures all over the country. But as I understood it, it was uh, only referred to the creation of new low-traffic neighbourhoods. So those of you poor sods who've already got it, like in Oxford, doesn't really affect you. Uh, but it was an indication of the government's attitude to these anti-car measures, which obviously uh, is a similar reaction to what you've had, and uh, I might say uh, mine too. Uh, uh, but uh, what, do you, what do you make of the government's stance? It's all very well to announce this, uh, but what are they going to do for poor Oxford? What are they going to do for all the other places that are suffering under these uh, low-traffic neighbourhood schemes that, as far as I can work out, apart from tyrannical little councillors, no one actually wants? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I was pleased to hear the Prime Minister uh, say there's going to be a review, but the, the small print was it's for new schemes, as you rightly point out, which is frustrating. Um, and, and if I'm honest, I shouldn't shy away from the fact that a lot of this started off the back of COVID when we were seeing those restrictions in place. Suddenly, LTNs were popping up to make walking and cycling uh, a huge benefit, which, which I can accept. But the problem is councils, particularly here in Oxfordshire, are now using those temporary traffic orders to make permanent. And that's essentially the decision today. So they've used COVID as a reason to implement them and now want to keep them in place. That's wrong. Um, I think the government, if I'm honest, need to look at funding. So the Department for Transport, Mark Harper, needs to stop funding these sorts of anti-motorist measures because they're the ones that are funding the really expensive cycle lanes, the bus gates, the AMPR cameras. That money is generally coming from central government. So that's where it needs to stop. Personally, I'd much rather that money was spent on resurfacing our roads and fixing our potholes than funding more AMPR cameras or LTNs. Yeah, um, I'll never forget that, as you say, in the COVID crisis, uh, almost overnight, 
you know, unsuspecting, unsuspecting citizens of this country suddenly woke up one morning to find their cities and towns had been completely changed. And this was, of course, under the auspices of the then Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps, who was in his own mind projecting the government's greenery. You know, we're a green party, you know, windmills, solar panels, LTNs. Yeah, Grant never asked us either. And it wasn't very conservative, if you ask me. This is the problem with LTNs. Uh, you know, it's the Tories' fault. They let it happen. They didn't listen to the people. That's what they never do. They never seem to listen to the people. But let's talk about some of the technicalities of what happens when you have LTNs. Uh, you corral all the traffic into you know, one or two main roads. They become, as a result, incredibly congested. And what happens in congested roads? Loads and loads of carbon emissions spew out of the car exhausts, uh, apart from electric cars, which not many people have. Uh, so they're counterproductive in terms of what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to create clean air, but they create the opposite. And, and I, think, I think it's this idea from from the supporters of LTNs, you know, like I get it all the time. And you see it on Twitter that, you know, the children can play in the streets and throw a ball about. I mean, it, it's, it's just nonsense. You know, that's what, that's what parks are for. I just, you know, and, and you're absolutely right. And we, we told the council this, that all you're going to do, you're not going to reduce the congestion. You're just going to push it onto the main roads. And, and you, you've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what's happened. We told them this is what happened. Um, and the idea that they're being implemented to speed up. Um, you know, bus services. And, and like I said, now the bus companies have come out and said, actually, it's not worked. Um, you know, they cannot, they cannot press ahead with this. Um, and we've, you know, we've, we've banged the drum for this for, for a long time now in Oxford. It is mainly focused on Oxford, but we're also seeing it trickle out to our market towns. So Whitney, uh, the former, 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 former Prime Minister's uh, constituency uh, is also seeing this. So during COVID, the high street was closed off because the footpaths were widened. It kind of made sense, to be honest, because people were obviously social distancing. But that was a temporary measure now been made permanent, despite, you know, 38, 37 out of the 38 high street businesses being against it. This council decided, actually, we're going to implement it. We're going to keep it in place. Uh, and we've got a couple of wooden planters in the road and, and, some, and some signage to say you can't come through. And this is the sort of stuff that we're up against. But it's, uh, you know, we keep keep banging the drum, keep making this point. And I think people are really starting to wake up to this now. And it was good to hear uh, the prime minister at his conference speech talk about this anti-motorist agenda. But that anti-motorist agenda must stop with the Department for Transport funding uh, a lot of these anti-motorist measures uh, that we're then trying to fight locally at, uh, in sort of local government. Yeah. I love the way that they do this. It's just, I've just had one uh, near where I live where they suddenly block off a road and they put a few sort of boxes with trees hanging out of them. And then they put like chairs and benches around as if people go, yeah, what a lovely place to sit. Where it used to be a junction, I can now hang out. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Uh, why do these, you know, as you indicated earlier, uh, Liam, I mean, I've never met anyone who said, you know what, I love those uh, low traffic neighborhood schemes. They're great. You know, I really want more. Every, let's have more of them. I've never ever met anyone who said anything but, I hate 
low traffic neighborhood schemes. Uh, and the people that really hate them, they're called drivers, motorists. Uh, there are 30 million of us all over the country. So quite why these two-bit local politicians want to declare war on 30 million people is beyond me. And that's really the crux of my question. Why do these local councils behave like this? Why do they not listen to what people want? I think it's something sort of weird that it's about power. Uh, and if you really ask these people, why have you imposed very unpopular low traffic neighborhood schemes on us? Uh, they would uh, in private say, because we can. It's about authority, yeah. it's about power. It's about telling the people, the little people uh, like me, uh, we're in power in the town hall, not you. Would you yeah, agree with that? You're absolutely right. It is it is a control mechanism. And um, to answer your point of who's in favour of them, the people that are in favour of them, the people that live on the roads that have been shut off because they're living in a lovely, uh, you know, dead-end road now where a little Timmy can throw his ball outside the house and not go to the park. But, you know, it, it, it's it's a very good point. And, and, you know, clearly these don't work. Um, you know, we've seen the congestion go onto the main roads. It's not it's not evaporated. We said this wouldn't happen, you know, that that would happen, that people would, uh, you know, take other routes. Uh, and like I said, the bus companies are, you know, are completely against it. Um, so, you know, we, we live in a democracy and the report that's going to the cabinet, cabinet today clearly... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. It shows that, the, that local residents aren't in favour because they've been impacted businesses like uh, you know clinton's business is, is suffering and that's not acceptable we're not 
we're not elected by the residents of, of this great county to dictate to them what they should or shouldn't be doing. That's certainly not what I become a councillor for. You're there to elect on what they want implemented and they, people don't want the, these anti-motorist measures. So uh, it, it's our job as elected representatives to, to in, in any way we can. And um, I'm so hoping that the Lib Dems and the Greens see sense today, um, but I think it's this ideology that it's all about climate change. But as you as you just said and are quite right, all it's done is push the traffic on the main roads. So those gas guzzling cars are kicking out fumes um, on on the, on the more arterial roads now. That that's not a solution. So you're just hoping that the Lib Dems and the Greens see sense. Uh, do you see any yes, inherent problems with that statement? <laughs> I do. They're incapable of seeing sense. Yeah, you're telling me. You're telling me. I have to battle these guys every single day. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's relentless. Look, I'm going grey at uh, the age of 50. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it, it's a massive battle, but it's one I, I, I enjoy doing. And, you know, someone's got to do it. And, and, you know, I appreciate that my party's not always got this right and we've got the, the funding challenges, you know, uh, for these measures. But I, I see it as our job to... Uh, give these guys a, a good a good kicking at the ballot box uh, and show people that actually, you know, maybe we haven't got it right in the past and ignore what's going on nationally, perhaps with, with, with various things. But, you know, we are the grown ups in the room and uh, re-elect us again in, in May 25. And we'll 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 bring some common sense back to this council. I hope. Uh, Liam Walker, Oxford councillor. Great to talk to you and good luck uh, with the decision this afternoon. Uh, unfortunately, I don't see much hope for you, but I hope you win. Uh, but keep up the fight. Great to talk to you. Liam Walker there. Well, the restaurateur in Oxford who compared councillors to dictators in a new billboard which he installed outside his business was, as I said earlier, Clinton Pugh. I spoke to him on Friday about why he did it. Clinton, uh, impressive sign on your restaurant there. What has made you put that up? Well, it's uh, a year last May, the uh, county council decided to roll out their um, ill-thought-out low traffic order or road closures or whatever, a distance of 1.2 miles between two very important roads, the Cowley Road and Niffley Road. On that road, there's over 200 businesses uh, it was a vibrant trading area. Uh, most of these uh, um, businesses, owners, uh, English is their second language, so they're scared to actually shout up and, and defend or be outspoken. Um, and, of course, I am outspoken. Uh, I have I've traded on that road for 31 years. Councillors haven't bothered to come and speak to us after they've even before they implemented them and after they haven't implemented. They've done... Their own cons the consultations they've had, uh, the public has been very much against what they've done, but they still haven't bothered to reassess it or come back and talk to us. They haven't come up with an alternative. We've even recently had in the Oxford Mail today, a stagecoach and Oxford bus services uh, saying they're very disappointed that they are not reversing the LTNs because it's caused them extreme damage in their service. So we haven't got an alternative. So if they stop the cars uh, at the moment, They've taken away 600 car parking spaces off of the Cowley Road and white and single yellow lines. They, uh, so our nighttime economy has been destroyed. Um, unfortunately, there, there are not enough local residents to actually feed or support these businesses. Uh, they haven't done a business assessment. Uh, all in all, it's extremely disappointing. They're not listening. And, and, and so I guess if you're in politics and you're running a country and you don't listen to what people want or don't do anything to do with what people want. You are a dictator, aren't you? What else can we call them? 
Yeah, I think it's extraordinary. I mean, Oxford's a particularly egregious example of these town hall tyrants, you know, who don't seem to care about businesses, local small businesses, apart from the money they can extract from them in business rates, etc. Uh, but, the, you know, what, why are, are they the enemy of people like you? Why do they never listen to people like you? Because, you know, where I live, I, you know, I know my dry cleaner, for example, you know, they suddenly put a cycle lane outside his business. No one can park anywhere near it. And, uh, yeah. you know, he's in they, trouble. He's been there 30 years. Why are they doing this? Well, it, look, it's an, ide- it's an ideological approach. I mean, I think they're all following the example of a particular city in Belgium. I think it's called Gant or Gwent or something like that. <laughs> um, it works. But, of course, all shoes don't fit all. You know, it's, uh, there's not one size for everything. And Oxford is not designed... I mean, they... If they'd have organised trams, you know, over the last 10 years, going up and down the main roads going in and out of Oxford, and there are car parks on the ring roads so that everyone could park. But the reality is the Cowley Road, you actually can't get there. If you go if you go park in the park and ride, it takes you have to get into the centre of town. The, bike, the buses don't go to the Cowley Road. So it just takes too long. Two members of my staff today have taken over an hour to get to work. I mean, this is just ridiculous. We can't, people don't, you know, it's very hard to get managers or staff if they don't live locally. Um, it just takes too much time. I mean, my, my daughter getting home at a distance of three and a half miles, four miles, it costs her 30 pounds in a taxi at the moment if she's working at night time. You know, most individuals can't afford to, to pay that. I mean, it's, we all want a greener, cleaner Oxford, but there must be a better way. You need to think it through properly, and you can't just approach it with a suck it and see. I mean, we've got the ring road, the A34, grinding to a halt all the time now. Uh, pollution levels on parts of the Cowley Road, St. Clements and other areas are, are past the, 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 the illegal limits. But, of course, the council, county council have put their monitoring boxes in places where the traffic isn't. So they go, oh, no, 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 the, the pollution is not bad. Well, it is. You know, they, it's this, this whole don't do as I do, do as I say kind of attitude. And, you know, I, my, I'm, I'm, I've already lost hundreds of thousand pounds on, on a, one of my sites being repossessed by the landlord. I don't know how all the businesses are actually managing to survive at the moment. Of course, when one business closes, another one will attempt to try. But these people are losing their livelihoods. You know, I'm losing my pension. This is, you know, I've been there for 31 years they didn't, not one councillor came to ask me what I think would happen before they in, they've implemented it. And I've only had one councillor come to speak to me just before Christmas last year. Um, well, I said to him, could he have a whip round with the councillors, please, to uh, provide enough money so I can pay the wages? Uh, in the end, Florence uh, helped me out, bless her. You know, but this shouldn't be this way. I mean, it's just not fair. I'm a very experienced businessman. Um, and I have had to, you know, we've had to result to spend large amounts of our time trying to battle a council that was supposed to be act- acting for the citizens of Oxford and Oxfordshire. They're destroying the city. Welcome back. You are watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk TV with me, Kevin O'Sullivan. Uh, there's been a lot of hoo-ha recently to go green or go home with the UK ban on petrol cars now on course to be implemented by 2035. But with a great change comes great responsibility and following a spate of electric car fires 
and not to mention the recent indoor car park fire at Luton Airport that saw 1,500 vehicles destroyed. New proposed government guidelines look set to be implemented. These include widening indoor car parking spaces and quite literally dunking, burning electric cars into baths of water. What? <laughs> it comes after ministers were told that battery-powered vehicles posed a medley of risks to indoor car parks, which could render many 1960s-era fire safety laws dangerously out of date. Joining me now to discuss uh, this is a motoring journalist, Quinton Wilson. Hello, Quinton. Hi, Kevin. Uh, how safe is my... Well, I haven't got one, actually, but just imagine I have got an electric car. How safe is it? So there were 100,000 car fires um, uh, in the UK every year. And, and the figures we have are less than 300 of those are electric cars. So that is 0.03%. So you're much, much, much less likely to have a fire in an electric car than you are in a combustion car. You, I think it's about 20 times more likely to have a fire with a, a petrol or diesel car than a, 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 an EV. So, you know, the statistics, which which are pretty solid with 12 years of electric cars being being around, suggest that, you know, they're not not the fire risk that people people say. And that Luton car park, Kevin, it wasn't started by an electric car, it was started by a diesel Range Rover. Uh, yes, I, I did hear that. Uh, I'm not sure whether they've established that 100%, but it looks that way. Um, now, what's this uh, thing about uh, putting my electric car into a bath of water? Uh, what is that all about? So lithium-ion batteries are difficult to put out. So um, they, they, they take much longer. They require much, much, much more water, and they, they take a long time to sort of cool down. So on this old tech, these Gen 1 batteries, um, fire services are looking at alternative ways of just putting the whole battery pack into um, a, a bath of water. It, it's difficult and, and fairly impractical in a, in, a, in a road traffic accident, but those batteries are changing. The battery chemistries are getting a lot better and there are less combustive materials and, 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 and less um, electrolyte in them and, and less cobalt. And we will see Certainly with LFP batteries, they're very, very hard to catch catch fire. And also we'll get towards solid state batteries, which will, will have very little fire risk at all. So, yes, you need to do something about it. Yes, you need a set of standards and fire, fire officers and, 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 and fire brigades need to understand. But let's just not panic about this. It's not as bad as people are claiming on social media. Uh, it rarely is, Quinton, with any issue. But uh, in terms of electric cars, I mean, how is the electric car project going? Uh, because a lot of people are uh, reticent, uh, first of all, because of the infrastructure. Driving around with an electric car is known to be very problematic. You know, will you find somewhere to charge it up? And of course, once you do, uh, you have to wait a long time and so on and so forth. But also, of questions are being asked about just how ecological they are, how ecologically friendly they are. You know, the, but the manufacture of the batteries uh, in itself uh, is not exactly green. Uh, and then, in fact, uh, if you break it right down in the long term, electric cars might, in terms of the components required, uh, be more environmentally unfriendly than petrol cars. So people are thinking about that. I mean, electric car purchase, I mean, there's a lot around, but it's not quite taking off 
I think, how uh, the enthusiasts had hoped. Well, look, there's 20% of the market now, which is electric car. Um, and we've seen some really, really high figures in August and September. Private sales aren't as high as they, they should be, but, but fleet sales are very good. Those figures are being replicated in France um, and, and in America too. So this is a global thing. Electric cars are, are, are huge in, in, in China. Um, and the, the ecological point is that, you know, there's a lot of research now that, that, that says it... it it's far, far, far more polluting to drill for oil, explore for oil, refine the oil, ship it around the world, do all this stuff than, than, than mine for lithium for, for, for a battery. And that carbon debt in an EV is paid off in about 15,000 miles. Um, and then after that, it's absolutely carbon neutral because there's no tailpipe emissions. And, and people say that the tires give off particulates. Well, my electric car is still on its original tires that came from the factory after 37,000 miles. So they're, they're not disintegrating, as people would say. So I think we, we all of us need to be, be, be aware of, of the facts of this and not to listen to social media and not to listen to all the, the harbingers of doom that, that just don't want electric cars to go forward. And this idea that an electric car is 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 less is more polluting than a, a fossil fuel car, given that the amount of resources to get that oil out the ground and then transport it around the world and refine it, it it's 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 a nonsense. So if you look at the science, the science will tell you that electric cars are much much greener than combustion cars. What about the pressure on the grid, though? If we all get electric cars and we're charging up from the grid, then. Uh... <laughs> By one step removed, we're still, uh, you know, drawing on fossil fuels and all the things that damage the environment. We're just sort of saying, oh, because we plug our car in, we're not actually doing it, but we are fueling our cars in the end from the same old sources. Well, I mean, nearly 40% of electricity coming into the grid now is renewable um, in the UK. And, you know, all that wind and that solar and that nuclear and that hydro and that tidal is going to make that even better. And the, the point here is, I think, Kevin, that, you know, what's happening in the world right now means that we've got to be really, really aware of our energy security. We're going to see oil go up and up in price. So we have to set the foundations in place now to make sure that we are energy independent and don't rely on monopolistic regimes in other countries that are that are always trying to push the the price of oil up um so it, it, this is an energy transition and you know you can drive your combustion car till you you drop dead uh, nobody's stopping you do that you, you can you can buy second hand combustion cars you won't be able to buy a new combustion car at 2035, but if Labour come in, it'll be 2030. So nobody's taking that away from you, but we've just got to understand that this is a sun sunrise technology here, uh, and, and, and the oil and gas is a, a sunset technology, and, and, and the world is changing, and we have to adapt. And there are lots of jobs, there's lots of economic opportunities for the UK to bring this change forward and, and just transform the way we we consume energy and stop burning stuff, basically. Fair enough. I'd like to bring in uh, now, if I can, a former Top Gear presenter, Steve Berry. Uh, good morning, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Uh, what, what's your take on this? Uh, are our electric cars safe? Uh, and are they here to stay? Uh, Quinton Wilson just indicating that uh, about 20% of us now have electric cars. 
Uh, I've detected a sort of plateauing of the market. People are a bit worried about just how environmentally friendly they are and, of course, the infrastructure. Uh, but do you think they're here to stay? Uh, will uh, sales of electric cars uh, continue to rise? Well, as ever, Quentin talks a lot, a hell of a lot of sense there, and I, found, I find it very difficult. I know we're kind of meant to disagree on this because that's how these sort of programs work, but yeah, I'm really on, struggling to disagree with <laughs> with what Quentin said. He talks so much sense there. Mike, it doesn't really matter if we do or don't want electric cars. They are here to stay. The motor industry can't make multi-billion dollar decisions and then have governments flip-flop a month or six months or a year down the road. As Quentin will be able to tell you better than me, they have to make investments that are based on 5, 10, 25, 50-year projections of where they're going to be and what they're going to be making. And their hand was forced to a degree by governments. They were sent down this road. There were alternative suggestions. Hydrogen may be as, as the power source for personal transportation of the future. And, and I do believe that hydrogen will be the power source for commercial traffic, for, for trucks and for ships and for trains. But I think we've got electric cars, whether we like them or not. But today, I was talking to a structural engineer who was to do with one of the big car park fires that happened a few years ago. And at the end of the conversation, which was very enlightening, he said to me, would you be comfortable parking next to an electric car in a car park and leaving your car there for two weeks while you went on holiday? And I said, frankly, no. So, you know. So what is this? Why, you know, I'm a sort of technical, mechanical moron. Maybe I'm just a moron generally, but seriously, uh, why do electric cars uh, uh, combust? Why do they explode? Why do they catch fire? Well, after I've spoken well, to the structural engineer, <laughs> which was a bit of a head trip, trying to understand everything that he told me, I went and spoke to an electrical engineer who installs complex systems for homes of like... Um, power windows, air conditioning, all this linked smart home technology. And he understands way more about this sort of thing than me. And he said, one of the problems is poor manufacturing. Yeah. It's not, this is why we haven't heard, haven't heard of too many problems with things like Teslas and Porsches and the high-end electric cars. It's maybe he thought a problem with more cheaply manufactured cars, which are sold more cheaply and henceforth there'll be more of them, increasing numbers of them on the roads. The problem, of course, with lithium-ion batteries, as he explained to me, is that when they're burning, they create their own oxygen. And so it's almost impossible to put them out. I think we've all seen photographs on social media. Quentin was talking about scare stories on social media. But the guy I was talking to today was saying, the fire brigade's policy at the moment is just let the things burn because it creates its own oxygen. It breaks water down into hydrogen and oxygen. That's what lithium does when it's burning. So the, and the problem is in a car park, if it's parked next to a combustion engine car with a plastic fuel tank, and I don't think many people would realize that most modern cars, the fuel is carried in something that is essentially plastic. Once that plastic melts, it sends petrol through the drainage system of the multi-story car park. And as he said, he couldn't think of a more effective way of burning down a multi-story car park if he tried. An electric car sets on fire, it melts the petrol petrol tank of the cars next to it, and all of a sudden you've got petrol streaming through the drainage system 
which of course a multi-story car park needs to have to get rid of water, and it's onto the next floor. And then the fire brigade, and quite rightly in my opinion, just stand back and say, we're not dealing with this. This is an apocalypse. Now, uh, legendary screenwriter Richard Curtis said he was, and I quote, stupid and wrong for making fat jokes in his classic 90s films like Bridget Jones's Diary. During an interview uh, with uh, daughter, his daughter and feminist writer Scarlett, uh, Curtis says the jokes are no longer funny and he wished he had been ahead of the curve by casting diverse actors for his film Notting Hill. Speaking of the casting, the former head of the Royal Shakespeare Company says white actors are currently struggling to find work in the industry. Joining me now is entertainment journalist Rebecca Toomey. Uh, what do you make of Richard Curtis's comments, Rebecca? And why has he come out with all this now? Well, exactly. And, and can I first say, was it ever funny to laugh at someone Fat, yeah, women. Yeah, it was. I, yeah, it I'm was. Not sure, I'm not sure if it was. Yeah, it was. It was, was funny. Was, was it yeah, funny? still is. You think? Yeah. I mean, Bridget Jones in her pants. I mean, can we also just say with the Bridget Jones character? I don't think Curtis can take full responsibility for a woman's literary works. And I know I'm not going on a feminist rant to you, Kev. I absolutely promise this, but. Helen Fielding was the, was the writer of Bridget Jones's diary, and she was the one that talked about nine and a half stone um, being, you know, overweight and and the rest of it. So I don't think we can exclusively blame Curtis for this. So the reason he came out and said this was at Cheltenham Literary Festival while he was being interviewed by his daughter, who is a feminist writer, and she called him out on it. And I think perhaps fairly so, but I don't think you know, Curtis can really be held to account for 90s diet culture and the way we do like to perhaps criticise people that aren't perfect and are on TV. So, I mean, this is the time, the time of Bridget Jones's diary in this film was, you know, the late 90s, which was when Kate Moss was the pinnacle of beauty, which she is a beautiful lady, but her physique, her being very, very slim, was was the fashion clothing was designed i remember being a young you know woman in in those days and and being quite heavily affected by this and thinking well hang on bridget jones isn't all that big and all that fat and then he's also talking about in love actually martin mccutcheon now she was cast as character Rebecca, does any of this matter? I mean, if a joke's yes. funny, it's funny. You know, all this upper middle class hand wringing. Oh, I'm sorry, I come from a, a, a public school, an undiverse background, and I shouldn't have done all this, and I shouldn't have made jokes about people being fat. Well, really, does it matter that much? And uh, you know, why can't we make jokes about people being fat? We always did. Why suddenly can't um we do it? suddenly can't do it. it it was of its time is what I'm saying to you it was of a time when there was a particular aesthetic that always is in beauty and particularly around women and female characters men have it too as well I, I, we do laugh at men who are overweight rightly or wrongly I mean look Kevin you know me well enough we have the right to laugh I believe in the freedom of speech but the fact that Curtis has come out and said this in hindsight, he thinks that probably wasn't the best thing to do because it has a wider impact. But I don't think he's exclusively responsible for this. But with diversity now, we do want to champion lots of different people. But we're not just talking about jokes and feelings. We're talking about health and the well-being of our young people. Love Island has come under endless scrutiny for only focusing on a certain aesthetic 
you know, young men with six packs, women, young women with, you know, lots of filler and, and all the rest of it. And that causes quite an outcry. And it's it's not really that dissimilar to poking fun at a woman who's actually quite a healthy weight. And I think that's a bigger problem than whether or not we're laughing at a joke or not. Yeah, I mean, it depends how it's done. You don't want to upset people. Uh, but, I, you know, I still think you can make uh, jokes about, shall we say, the generously proportioned people amongst us. Why not? Uh, this is just some guy, you know, retrospectively trying to act like, you know, he's virtue signalling, saying, oh, I was wrong then, but I won't make that mistake again. You know, his daughter gives him a lecture about the fat jokes and uh, he says, uh, oh, I suddenly realised she was... She said to me, uh, Scarlett, uh, you can never use the word fat again. And this is Curtis. And wow, I thought, she's right. I mean, what a ridiculous thing to say on, on the part of both of them. Why can't you use the word fat? Why can't you make jokes about people? Uh, we always did make jokes about fat people. As I say, you don't want to go too far. You don't want to absolutely up upset people. But do we have to live now under the tyranny of the joke police? You're not allowed to make a joke about that. You can't make a joke about that. Do one. Yes, I can. Stop telling me what I can and cannot do. You absolutely can, and I want you Thank to, you. because I find you very fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving you permission. But what, what we're talking about here is we're, look, we're going looking backwards now, and I don't think it's helpful to censor, you know, Roald Dahl books because words in the Twitter are offensive, or we go back in, in through history and say this is everything we've done wrong. What I wanted to say really was Bridget Jones and Love Actually were of its time. Now, was it appropriate for the time? That can be debated, but we're talking about now. And now it doesn't sit well in 1999, Bridget Jones's diary, some of the content, but it sat well then. We laughed then. We found it a certain way then. Because, because, we, we, were, because we were, because in those days, uh, we knew how to have a, have a laugh. Now we torture ourselves and we just go, oh, you can't laugh at that, you can't laugh at that. I mean, why is life so much more rubbish than it used to be when filmmakers could just make a joke and their only criteria was, is it funny? If it makes people laugh, I'm going to make that joke. No, it's not. Oh, well, that's a funny joke, but can we tell it? Can oh, I don't think so. It's just absurd. We're sticking ourselves in into an artistic straitjacket that is ruining comedy. I mean, you know, what about the works of Helen Fielding? If uh, Richard Curtis made Love Actually again, and my God, I wish he never made it in the first place, but uh, <laughs> would he make it the same? I mean, that's what he should be apologising. He's apologising, you know, for the, shall we say, inadvertent racism in his films because all the characters yes. are white. And he's apologising for the sexism, making jokes about fat women. Uh, I think he should apologise for making the films in the first place, particularly Love yeah. Actually, but that's a different issue. Uh, I mean, if he made these films again, would he make them differently and would they be any better? Uh, what about the works of Helen Fielding? Surely if he made the Bridget Jones's films again, which, by the way, I did think were pretty funny, uh, yeah. he would have to honour her work uh, as the author, wouldn't he? Yeah, I, I think... I think really those books sit in that time. Um, I have to agree with you, Love Actually is not my favourite, but a lot of people like it, and it was of its time. If you're making something now, it needs to reflect what happens now. But we know with a lot of woker films, people aren't going to the box office. I I've referenced before the latest Top Gun film, which wasn't really overtly woke. It was, it was cleverly done, but that was one of the highest-gracing films of, of last year. 
So I think the appetite would have to change. I think diversity is very important. Representation of all body types, all races, that's very important. And that is something that needs to happen now artistically. But I don't think we can keep looking backwards. We just need to learn from what's happened before. Particularly, it's supposed to be entertaining. Films are supposed to be entertainment. They don't need to be hammering us all the time with an agenda and a culture and patronising us into how we should think. If you find a chubby joke funny, then so be it. If you find it offensive, don't watch that film. And that's very much how exactly. I stand on things. Exactly. And uh, if uh, Richard Curtis goes on listening to his daughter Scarlett, uh, who told him he must never use the word fat again, uh, then he's never going to make an entertaining film again. Uh, got a couple of texts in. Sandra uh, texted in and said uh, of Richard Curtis, why, is being, why has being unhealthy and overweight uh, become the desirable aesthetic for women. Uh, we don't desire skinny women, we desire healthy women. That's a good point. And uh, Gillian Devon uh, addressed this, if you will, uh, Rebecca. She says, I don't understand Richard Curtis regretting the past. No need for woke. Bridget Jones was a blockbuster film and uh, we, including my many female friends, enjoyed the film. That's all that matters, isn't it? Yeah, I think you need to enjoy it and take some of it with a pinch of salt. It's supposed to be aspirational. We, we want to see beautiful people on TV, as you know, Kevin, that's why you're on it. And um, we want to have something to aspire to. I think you, you just need to take it in context, but our, the weight situation, I think, can be more damaging to younger women. I will say for that part, because I was affected by Bridget being overweight at nine and a half stone when I was a young woman. Now, I don't care. I eat the cake and I drink the wine and I enjoy the film and I laugh when I want to laugh. But I think we do need to change that side of things now. Yeah, I agree. You do have to be careful because uh, uh, some people at a certain age when they're young, uh, you know, will take these films very, very seriously. And as yeah. I say, you know, when I say, why can't you make fat jokes? I mean, I mean that, but I don't mean it to the extent that people get upset by it. Films shouldn't do that. Uh, but uh, you, you take my point. Uh, if we can move on uh, to another issue, really concerning diversity as well. Uh, the a former director, the head of the uh, Royal Shakespeare Company, who was himself responsible for a lot of this kind of diverse gender casting. You know, he filled Troilus and Cressida male parts with females. We all know about more and more females playing white parts. And uh, a lot of actors of colour getting uh, the parts of white people, uh, white traditionally white roles. And this guy now says uh, that he fears that him and other uh, theatre directors went too far because now uh, middle-aged white men uh, can't get work in the acting community for love nor money. Uh, do we need to go back uh, a little uh, in that respect? Uh, do we need to <laughs> create more jobs for that uh, poor, put-upon section of the community, white middle-class males? Oh, boo-hoo. Welcome to the life of a white female 40-plus actress. I'm sure they've had plenty to say for decades that women pretty much wiped off of the entertainment industry once they hit their 40s. Um, I'm going to be a bit mean here. I mean, acting is an incredibly difficult profession. It's it's not something that anyone, it's no one's a stranger to that. But I also think it should be survival of the fittest. If you are hugely talented and hardworking, you know, go for it. Women are writing phenomenal parts for themselves, older women. Why can't these guys do the same thing? I'm, I'm, I'm going to celebrate diversity in this one. And I'm, I'm not going to say, you know, isn't it hard for them? We should have 
opportunities for absolutely everyone and the best talent for the role irrespective of how you look. Yeah, but how when you say you the best talent for a role, Rebecca, yeah. you know, if you're talking about, you know, what Shakespeare wrote, this is a female character. Uh, why go out of the out of your way uh, to cast or this is a male character? Why go out of your mm -hmm. way to cast a woman in it? I mean, that is deliberately taking work away from middle-aged white men, isn't it? Why do that? You know, Shakespeare I mean, wrote it. Shakespeare wrote it. By, by, you know, he was quite a good playwright. So why not honour yeah. what he wrote? Well, I think we can have it for everyone. I think we could do a traditional performance of if it's a male role with a male in that role and perform it at the Globe. And I also think we can do a modern performance for younger audiences who want to see different types of people in different roles. It doesn't have to be one way. We can still, I believe, honour the text and honour the performance and how it's done. And we can do an alternative performance for a younger audience or a woker audience. Can't we have it all? Isn't that what entertainment and culture is about? I don't see why it has to be so divisive. I don't see, I don't see why we have to say, don't cast that person, do cast this person. We can have lots of forms of art. Well, listen, as a white, middle-aged, middle-class man, it isn't easy being part of a persecuted community. Let me tell you, Rebecca. Uh, but uh, seriously, uh, let's talk about uh, the big show. It starts tomorrow night on Disney+. Plus. It is, of course, Wagatha. It is Colleen yeah. Rooney's side of the Wagatha Christie drama. We've already heard Rebecca Vardy. Of course, she lost the case. Uh, what can we expect from this saga uh, on television? I'm looking at the front page of The Sun now. Uh, she told Wayne at the height of his drinking, womanizing antics, I just can't carry on. Uh, so she was very upset by what he was getting up to. But this is also, of course, her story of how she came to win the Wagatha Christie battle against Rebecca Vardy. Uh, I believe you were involved in this. Have you been interviewed on it? I mean, what can we expect from this series? I mean, I would call myself an expert on Wagatha Christie. It's been the pinnacle of my journalism career in recent <laughs> years. Um, it's a phenomenal case. Um, what I would say with Colleen, though, is that... I haven't seen this documentary yet, but Colleen is incredibly careful. She doesn't reveal very much. And I don't know if this documentary is going to give us the juiciness and the real minutiae of everything, because there's nothing really much left to say about Wagatha Christie. It all came out in court. We've reported it so heavily. Colleen wants to tell her story, but she's much more on a different plane in terms of the, the, the interview she did with the Sunday Times style two weeks ago. She didn't really give anything away and she never does. She's very clever. So we might hear a little bit more about things about her marriage, but we already know everything that's been going on. I think it's just her reputation management and showing that she's almost sort of slightly classier, shall we say, and that she's not going to divulge or mudsling too much. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk TV with me, Kevin O'Sullivan. President Biden will be visiting Israel tomorrow in a show of solidarity in what is being described as a critical moment for the region. The US president will also go for talks with Jordan, Egypt and the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abba. Uh, to talk about the significance of this visit, let's cross over to the States where we can now speak to former Nevada State Republican Chairwoman Amy Tarkanian. Uh, Amy, uh, I'm tempted to say if you thought the situation uh, in Israel was bad now, wait until Joe Biden gets there. Uh, what will his visit achieve? 
Sure. Well, there's a New York Times article that came out this morning and it lists four items. One of them being just to solidify the support that America is going to give to Israel. Um, the fact that we're trying to avoid escalation um, and that you want to focus on strategy, not emotion. And then, of course, you want to rescue the hostages. And so I think that's really what his whole focus is um, on the reason why he's making this trip. Yeah, so uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has already been locked in uh, deep talks with Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister. So I think the process you're talking about is already underway. It does seem to be a priority on the part of uh, America, on the part of the president and his men uh, and women, of course, uh, that uh, to persuade Israel to exercise restraint in this imminent invasion. Uh, would you echo the feeling that that is important? Or do you feel uh, that Israel uh, must avenge what happened to it and must show the world that it will avenge what happened to it? Uh, well, I think they've made themselves pretty clear that they're not going to give any advice on uh, any military exercises or their strategy. And most Americans, uh, believe that Israel does have a right to defend itself. And it's unfortunate that it has become so barbaric. Um, this is the type of war crimes that you would never imagine that would be taking place that Hamas has actually went forward with. And, and the kidnapping of, like I mentioned, American hostages, a lot of uh, the Americans that are there are dual citizens. And so it is our, our primary focus to try and make sure that we get those people home safe. Um, I understand that America's already sent uh, 2,000 troops to the region. Uh, there's at least uh, one American warship uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean keeping an eye on the situation. Uh, what will those troops be used for in your understanding, Amy? Um, They're going to be used for anything that deals with the medical profession and humanitarian aid. They are not being sent in to fight. And so we do need to make that very clear um, because we obviously don't want to anger any other uh, neighboring nations thinking that we are completely overstepping and participating at, at a completely different level um, than may be propagandized. Um, uh, now, in terms of what are the American efforts right now, which I think, as I say, is definitely to try urge restraint uh, to Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, I'm assuming that America, President Biden, Anthony Blinken, are very concerned, as we are here in Britain, as everyone is all over the world, about the potential escalation of this conflict. Mm -hmm. Obviously, uh, there is going to be a war between Israel and Hamas, and that land invasion by uh, almost 400,000 Israeli forces will happen soon. Uh, but uh, we are also hearing that uh, tension and aggression on the northern border, uh, where Hezbollah, a similar terrorist organization to Hamas, Iranian-funded, uh, are stepping up their antics, firing rockets, Israel warning them. And uh, possibly even more alarmingly, uh, Iran is now saying, uh, talking in terms of a preemptive strike uh, the moment that Israel moves into Gaza. Uh, so we are talking about potentially a full-scale Middle Eastern war here. Uh, I mean, 
good for America for trying to avert that. But I've got to say, Amy, it sounds to me like a forlorn task to stop this conflict uh, escalating uh, to an alarming extent. Yes, I, and I would agree. And I think that's what most people are afraid of. You hear World War Three, you know, all the time now. Um, it's sitting there in the back of people's minds. And, you know, we have to understand, I guess, to some degree that not everybody uh, thinks the same way we do. Not everybody is, is wanting to be diplomatic. Not everybody is willing to come to the table and have a civilized conversation. You know, these, these are um, decades upon decades worth of, of anger and tension that have been building up. And so I think now President Biden going over there, yes, it, it's going to be a double-edged sword because you're going to have, as you mentioned, uh, you're going to have neighboring uh, countries that already are not thrilled with us. And so it's going to enrage them to some degree, even though he's trying to go over there to calm things down. So this is not going to be an easy task for President Biden at all. Can you, uh, I want to talk about Donald Trump in just a second, uh, but can you uh, describe America's reaction to what's happening in Israel? Here in Britain, it's been kind of strange and ambivalent insofar as, of course, like everyone else, we were utterly shocked uh, by Hamas's sudden unexpected invasion and the grotesque atrocities they committed. Uh, however, the reaction back in Britain has been kind of strange insofar as most of the demonstrations and the protests have been in favour of Palestine, pro-Palestine. You know, uh, everybody draped in flags, marching up and down the streets, free Palestine. So it seems like uh, many of the people or some people in Britain are blaming Israel for being attacked, which is kind of strange. Uh, what about the American people? How are they viewing what's going on? Unfortunately, there is some of that happening here, and we're actually seeing it on a number of university campuses. And so you're you're having comments coming out um, in favor, not just of Palestine, but also um, of Hamas to some degree. And it, it's been quite alarming. So it's not just students. It's also some professors, which which is quite perplexing because Hamas obviously is the one who started it. Um, we wouldn't be talking today about this if they hadn't gone in and, and done the atrocities that they that they accomplished. Mm. Um, so, yes, we are unfortunately seeing some of that. We've also had now a, a number of scenarios where, unfortunately, people are attacking each other. Um, we had a six-year-old Muslim boy that was killed and his mother was severely injured. Um, and we also had a terrorist who... Uh, plowed into, I think, a half dozen people in California. Um, and so we're now starting to, to fear that there's going to be an uptick in, in this um, type of behavior or misbehavior, if you will. Uh, let's talk about this uh, shocking story in Chicago, uh, the stabbing of a six-year-old boy, uh, Joseph Tuber, and the serious wounding of a 32-year-old woman. The attack is being seen as a hate crime, after the suspect singled out the victims because of their Islamic faith and as a response to the war between Israel 
And Hamas, a 71-year-old man, has been arrested. Uh, Amy, uh, you've just been alluding to it, but this is extremely worrying when people respond uh, with these kind of uh, appalling crimes. What do you make of it all? Sure. Well, I mean, you're, you're obviously dealing with people who are brainwashed and who are mentally ill. That's the only way to describe this, because if, if you are actually thinking that a six-year-old boy is going to be an evil human being, there's something severely wrong with you. He can't control that, that he's being raised as a certain religion. And just because he is a certain religion doesn't mean that uh, he is going to be participating in Islamist jihad when he gets older. Muslims do not associate themselves with Hamas. That is, that is Islamic jihadists, and, and they are um, completely separate in the way that they behave and the way that they carry themselves. So it's, it's very troubling. It certainly is. Now let's move on to Donald Trump, the former U.S. president, is currently seeking vindication in a high court challenge here in London over claims he bribed officials and took part in sex parties in Russia. Uh, the ex-president has said he would like to fly to London and give evidence in the British court where his case is being heard. Uh, was he wronged here, Amy? Were these total lies about what he allegedly got up to in Moscow? No, and actually, the, the tough thing is that finding defamation is so difficult. There's a fine line in order to win a defamation lawsuit, and that's what he would be dealing with. And so, you know, when you have somebody such as Hillary Clinton and his other opponents who paid for this, uh, Mr. Steele is the one who, you know, claimed to have the findings of this situation. And then he's the one who issued it to the FBI, which in turn, you know, gave it to a U.S. senator. And then the media gleefully ran with it, even though there was no, uh, no truth to it. So even though I'm not necessarily a fan of President Trump at this time, I think he has every right to go ahead and defend himself in this situation. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, very intriguing to see him. I mean, we're used to seeing him in American courts. Looks like we'll see him in a British court pretty damn soon. Uh, let me just ask you on a general basis, uh, Amy. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, is he the next president of the United States? I think he's a shoe-in, almost locked in as the Republican candidate. Uh, can he win? You know, this whole whole thing has just been a embarrassing circus. You will find that most people do not want a rematch of President Biden versus President Trump at all. But if we are stuck with either one of those two, President Biden has done such a, a terrible job, um, especially with our economy uh, and the, the fact that we see inflation rising, Still, we've got gas prices skyrocketing. You know, now you can get gas once again in California for $7 a gallon. There's no way people can continue living like this. So, yes, he very well could be. And I never thought I'd be saying that. I'll tell you what, $7 a gallon, uh, the equivalent over here, people will be queuing around the block uh, for that kind of bargain price. Uh, but uh, oh, wow. but uh, what about uh, Trump's uncanny ability to, uh, the, every time he gets indicted or he gets a new legal problem, his popularity rises. Who are the people mm -hmm. that are su supporting him? Uh, why do they like him the more trouble he is in? And uh, again, let me just press you on this. 
Do you think he will uh, be the next president of the United States of America? I certainly hope not. Um, I, I think he has caused a lot of havoc um, with our election system, especially with him claiming that uh, that his election was stolen. It really um, hurt our democracy. It put it into people's minds that their votes really don't matter. And I don't think that's acceptable. Um, I would hope that the Democrats come up with another candidate or that uh, Republicans actually come to their senses and and choose another one of the many great options that we do have. But it just doesn't seem that way. And it seems that his base is hell bent on sticking with him no matter what, because he's really excellent at bringing people into the fold of victimhood. So he has his famous line where he says, they're not coming after me. You know, they're they're coming at me for you, something along those lines. And so he uses uh, lines like that constantly in his email blasts, on his truth social, where he brings everyone um, under his tent and makes them feel like they could be the next victim if they don't support him. Yeah, and uh, Joe Biden, uh, for all his many strengths, I can't think of any offhand, but uh, he's, a <laughs> lousy, he's a lousy campaigner. Uh, and yeah. Donald Trump, uh, for all his... Uh, problems uh, is one hell of a fantastic campaigner. So if yes. it comes to a, a straight race between those two old guys, Trump's going to win, isn't he? You know, it's just, I, I know you want me to say yes or no, but it's just, it's a wild <laughs> <do>. card scenario. <laughs> I know it's a wild card scenario because I know that there's people who, you know, I hate to use the word hate, but literally hate Donald Trump so much that they might be willing to just stomach, hold their, you know, hold their nose and vote for President Biden again, if God forbid he's still the Democrats nominee. So, you know, I, I think most people, when you look at polling, they're concerned with President Biden's age, with his mental capacity, yeah. and uh, with the fact that, you know, he he always seems to be kind of shuffling around, you know, lost aimlessly. And then with President Trump, you know, he comes across as this very strong, um, you know, he's very, very bullish. But, you know, people are concerned about his mouth and his rhetoric. <laughs> so, you know, there's problems with both. So I, I really don't know at this point. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.